With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Fighting Through, Episode 27. Veterans Bennett and Shale Remember D-Day. Roy Bennett relives his Juno Beach landing and more. I was 17 when D-Day started and my unit landed early in the morning on Juno Beach, Normandy. There was a horrendous noise as we landed. Bill Cheel revisits France on the 50th anniversary of D-Day. We arrived 50 years later at 12.15 hours and it was still drizzling with rain and windy, just like it was on D-Day. More great unpublished history. Hello again, I'm Paul Chielson of Bill Cheel, whose World War II memoirs have been published by Pen and Sword in Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg. The aim of these podcasts is to give you the stories behind the story. You'll hear first-hand memoirs and memories of veterans connected to Dad's war in some way, and much more. This episode's going to revolve around a note my dad did about the 50th anniversary of D-Day celebrations in France in 1994. So it's an old soldier's memories of a very emotional few days where he revisits old ground that he'd visited 50 years ago. And reading it certainly brought a few tears to my eyes, I can tell you. But first, I've got a surprise extra, in some ways the main event, because hot of the press, some kind person has just sent me a first-hand memoir of Juno Beach, would you believe? So this is going to be not only of interest to Brits, but also to Canadians, both of whom landed on Juno Beach. You know, it's funny how much I've learnt doing dad's memoirs because years ago i'd never even heard of juno or gold for that matter yet here i am trotting them off the tip of my tongue like i was well my dad um i'm not a pro historian but uh, my material is uh, produced by experts because it's the people who experienced these events firsthand so we're getting genuine unpublished history from the horse's mouth Jonathan emailed me just a couple of weeks ago. Can I firstly say how much I enjoyed your podcasts? I've listened to all of them at least once and I've even bought the book. I wonder if the attached brief memories of an RM48 Royal Marine Commando might be of use for a podcast. Uh, Roy Bennett's my friend's father and he's still alive and well at the ripe old age of 92. That's 2018. He's a D-Day veteran and went through the war largely unscathed except for the emotional scars that I'm sure every man who served must have felt. As such, Roy's never really spoken much about his time in the army. Just recently, however, he's put pen to paper and I attach his memories of his time during the war years. Roy's an excellent writer despite his advancing years. 
After the war, he became a copywriter, which I think is evident in the way he writes. These notes have never been published, and I think they make for an entertaining read. I am trying to get him to write more, but he isn't keen to write graphic accounts of his time during the war. He simply says these things are better left in the past, and too painful to put in writing. Best regards, Jonathan Hill. Jonathan, I can't tell you how chuffed I was to get your email, and I think Roy's memoir is terrific, and it it makes the perfect accompaniment to Dad's record of his visit to France 50 years after it all happened. Jonathan, many thanks for buying Dad's book. If you let me have your address, I'll send you a photo souvenir or two to use as a bookmark in Dad's book. And that offer goes to anyone else who would like the same. Just drop me a line, either through Twitter or Facebook or email. All the links are on fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk. In fact, everything to do with my podcast is on this website. Contact, social media, links photos, show notes, the lot. Take a shifty listener. Maybe you'll enjoy some of the videos I've posted up as well, like of Gold Beach or the Dunkirk Mole, which featured in the Dunkirk movie. I can't believe I've actually stood on it because the first time I went to France, I couldn't even find it. Mind you, it was Paris I was visiting. (laughs) Anyway, in answer to your question, Jonathan, would Roy's memoir be of use for the show? Well, I can say with Typical British understatement. Yeah, just a bit. (laughs) And we'll get on to it shortly. Feedback time. Um, I'd like to give a shout out to several listeners who've given me feedback on iTunes recently. Thank you to the Ogdens from Ireland and Burns B3 from USA for your very kind comments, together with Blaine from Oregon, who offered some really nice constructive comments about the music volumes uh, sometimes being a bit high Blaine thank you for this I do know how irritating it can be when this happens and I've recently started to tone down the music another notch or so Um, I hope in this episode it's about right so uh, please let me know thank you very much Uh, Sergi de Gries from UK has said What a moving experience it's been listening to the awe-inspiring Fighting Through podcasts, hearing the individual witness accounts of familiar and not-so-familiar events from the two world wars has made the history real to me in a new way. My uncle served on the destroyer HMS Walker, and my wife's grandfather was a Lancaster pilot during World War II. Your podcasts have allowed us to connect with their world in a new way. Living history. The community aspect to your work is particularly moving and impressive. I've shed a few tears listening to some of the accounts from your dad's memoirs and others. Many thanks and please keep them coming. A big thanks to you for that, Sergi. I loved your living history comparison. Um, and I think you're dead right about that. Uh, talking about the Dunkirk spirit, which I wasn't, but I will now. I'm very conscious that the UK and a lot of Europe is at this very moment in the grips of a very cold spell of weather. We're covered in snow and there are accidents and emergencies everywhere. The army has even been out rescuing people stranded on motorways. So if it's like that for you, show a bit of Winston's so-called Dunkirk spirit and spare a thought for older people in need who might live nearby. 
And if you're lucky enough to have a garden, make sure the birds have water and food. I've been amazed what's been in my own garden, but I won't talk about it now because that's somebody else's podcast. Moving on and moving on to the Marines. On D-Day, some Marines became landing craft crew and saw extensive action, and they get mentioned by Brian Moss in his D-Day memoir, episode 2. Take a listen if you've not heard it, and learn how Marine Corporal George Tandy was awarded the Distinguished Service Medal for his actions on D-Day. Just great stuff. And Brian Moss's memoir is terrific. The most amazing action. And his son Mike Moss just wrote to me recently with some great news on his own research. So I've decided I'm going to slot that in for the PS. So don't switch off, listener, until you hear the music. There's plenty of material about the Royal Marine Commandos on the web. And I've put some links in the show notes for anyone who wants to explore further including links to the Commando Veterans Association forum, which has a great display of photos for you to enjoy. Meanwhile, the memories of 48 Royal Marine Commando Roy Bennett. The humour and heartbreak of war. When I was 16, I was working in a Birmingham factory that made equipment for the war. One morning when I arrived at work, I noticed a new office had opened next door. When I looked through the window, I found they were recruiting, and that afternoon I went in and saw the sergeant. He didn't ask my age, he just asked which forces I wanted to join. I replied, the Royal Marines. When he asked why, I replied, because they're the best, sir. He seemed surprised, but I said I would have a letter in ten days. He was right. The letter arrived to tell me that I had to appear at the Royal Marines head office in Portsmouth for a medical. I passed the medical and was very happy that they wanted me. I hadn't told anybody in my family that I'd signed up, and when they heard the news, they were very shocked that at sixteen, I was in the Marines. My grandmother was particularly upset. I went off to Portsmouth, and after initial training at Easterny Barracks, we moved on to Fort Goma in Gosport. There were a number of forts built during the Napoleonic War to house French prisoners. Some were at sea, this one was on dry land. It had walls eight inches thick and smelt musty. It was reopened during the Second World War to house Italian prisoners taken in the desert, but was condemned by the Red Cross, so they put Marines in instead. We finished our basic training there. One day three of us were detailed to report to the cook sergeant. I want you lot to go to the orderly room and pick up a cheese. It's for the officer's mess, but I want you to bring it here. Be careful because it's very heavy. Do you understand? Looking very subdued, we replied, Yes, Sergeant. When we arrived at the orderly room, we found that the cheese was round, huge and covered in hessian. It took three of us to control it as we set off to roll it to the galley. All around the ground was rough and the path to the galley was narrow. When we got to the narrow part, which was about ten feet above a brook that meandered through the area, we had a problem. As young lads, we were laughing and joking about things in general when the huge cheese threw a wobbler on the uneven ground. 
It started to go from side to side, and we were unable to control it. Horror of horrors! It went over the edge and tumbled down into the brook below, where it lay on its side in the water. Looking back today, it sounds hilarious, but we recruits were frightened to death to tell the cook sergeant. We managed to get it out of the water, and in the break period we got some of the squad to help us get it back on the path when we tried to dry it off with loads of towels. In the meantime, the cook came looking for his cheese, and was not a bit interested in our story. But the next morning we found ourselves outside the orderly room again, where we were all given three days confined to barracks by the adjutant for carelessness in charge of war office property. After our next leave we were moved to the Royal Marine Depot at Deal in Kent for the next phase which was tactical training. One day a shell from one of the big guns near Calais landed on the parade ground just as a marine was walking across. He had to have a leg amputated, and that really brought it home to us how close the Germans had really got to our country. At Deal, there was a sadistic drill instructor who loved to humiliate the recruits. One was a 17-year-old volunteer from Devon who had the misfortune to have the name W.C. Brown. He was given a dreadful time at the hands of the sergeants, and we all felt sorry for him. In the squad was a huge man, much older than we youngsters. There was an assortment of physiques in all squads, but he really stood out. Of course, his nickname was Tiny, and the sergeant loved to take the mickey out of him. One day as the squad were drilling on the parade ground, the sergeant gave the order to fix bayonets, and at the end of the parade ground he gave the order about turn. As they marched back towards the sergeant, Tani broke ranks and charged as if he were doing bayonet practice. Just in time, the sergeant ran for his life. We all felt at the time that Tani had done the right thing, and it gave us something to talk about for days. Tani spent some time in the glasshouse, and we never saw him again. The sergeant was posted immediately but I was to meet him once more at the end of the war in the Pacific area, by which time he was a regimental sergeant major. While we were at Deal, we spent the last few weeks at Kingsdown, a few miles away, to complete our field training. We had to take turns on guard duty. Just outside the camp, there was a wood overlooking the sea, and there were a number of boys with lights on at sea. One of our orders was to keep an eye on them and report immediately if any of the green lights turned red. I was colour blind anyway, but nobody took any notice when I told them. There were quite a number of the squad who came from towns and knew little of country life. Being on their own in a wood with lots of rustling and owls hooting <laughs> made them uneasy and more than a little nervous. Those of us who were country lads had quite a good laugh at their expense. At Kingsdown, we were in one of the Warner's holiday camps, with two of us to a chalet. Above the bed was a shelf, and on this we had to put our fighting order pack, which had to be perfect, with the exact amount of ground sheet showing. On top of it was our steel helmet. One evening a duel started when the huge siege guns on both sides of the channel opened up, 
The chalet shook and the steel helmet came crashing down, almost decapitating me. I finished the training and joined a new unit, Royal Marines 48th Commando. As I was the youngest of all the lads, they nicknamed me Babs, which I hated. I was just 17 when D-Day started, and my unit landed early in the morning on Juno Beach, Normandy. There was a horrendous noise as we landed. People were dying leaving the landing craft boat. It was terrible. Bullets were crashing all around at our feet, and parachutes were falling from the sky. I was very frightened and just stopped in my tracks. I couldn't move. Suddenly, I shook myself and said, I'm a Royal Marine, and got moving as quickly as I could up that beach. It was the worst thing that has happened to me in my whole life. I was very fortunate and got away. I was never injured as so many were. When we were in Normandy, one of my best friends was a lad from Manchester. He was great company and never had a care in the world. He had a lovely girlfriend and thought the world of her. She wrote to him several times a week. Mail was not the number one priority at the time and would often be delayed, and then several letters would arrive at once. They were precious, and we would retire to our own secluded spot to read them in privacy. My mate always looked forward to receiving his letters from home, but suddenly there were longer periods when he received nothing and he became a different person, even with me, his friend. Then one day the post arrived and he got a letter. He was really excited. When he didn't return from his private spot, I went looking for him and I found him with his head in his hands and the letter on the grass. He was totally devastated. I lit a cigarette and gave it to him. What's happened, I asked, expecting that I already knew the answer. She's gone, Babs, he replied, not looking at me. She's met someone at work. I didn't know what to say to help him, but watched helplessly as he became a shadow of himself and lost interest in everything. You have got to be careful, I warned him. If you lose your concentration, it could be fatal for you. Who cares, he replied. Well, your family does for a start, and I do as one of your best mates. You're 18, for God's sake, with your whole life in front of you. I was upset and worried for him, but he was in no mood to listen. One day, he went out on patrol with his partner and never returned. His mind was elsewhere, and he paid the price. One further memory I do have. A bugler arrived on the battlefield with a sergeant holding a bucket of rum. The sergeant gave everyone a tot apart from me. You're too young for this stuff, Babs, he said. I was very upset that the Royal Marines let me fight the enemy, but they would not give me a drink. Later, I went to Australia and that was wonderful. We went to join the attack on Japan but on the way we were told that the war was over and that was such good news. When I got home they asked me to stay on and train new recruits but I'd had enough of it all by then so I left but I'm proud to have been a Royal Marine and part of D-Day. After all this time and at the age of nearly 92 
The French have presented me with their highest order, the Légion d'Honneur. For my part in the Normandy landings on the 6th of June, 1944. Listener, that's the end of that story. I must say thank you to Jonathan Hill for sending me this memoir. And Roy, thank you so much for making the effort to write those memories down. They are absolutely priceless and I hope people will be listening to this podcast for many years to come. So you'll go down in history, my friend. I think it's fantastic that the French people awarded you the Légion d'honneur. What an honour. No doubt you've thought of all your fallen pals over the years, and I suspect, in your mind and in no small measure, you've awarded it posthumously to all your fallen comrades. I'm going to move on now uh, with a very funny story which Roy's memoir reminded me of. It's the bit about the interview in the recruiting office where he puts his case to be a Marine. Um, I've got a friend, Wayne, who tells a story about <laughs> about when he interviewed to join the Royal Navy in the 1970s. Um, he would have been in the uh, recruiting office. Uh, he's done all the paperwork and then he's in front of the recruiting officer and uh, the recruiting officer asks him, not unreasonably, could he swim? And Wayne says, why do you ask? Are you running out of ships? <laughs> so needless to say, Wayne didn't get uh, taken into the ranks of the Royal Navy Um but the funny thing is that at the beginning of the war, stores and equipment were so poor that Wayne's retort might not have been seen as being so inappropriate. But thank you for the chuckle you've given all of us on that one, Wayne. You're listening to Fighting Through, Episode 27. Veterans Bennett and Cheel remember D-Day. Listener, I'm now going to read from Dad's diary of his visit to Normandy in June 1994. I went with him and my brother-in-law David. Friday 3rd of June 1994 After a rather rough crossing of the channel, we arrived at the cottage at 2200 hours. David lit a roaring fire in no time at all to put some warmth into the place. It was a good cottage, three good-sized bedrooms, a large lounge, kitchen and dining room with a bar, all spotlessly clean. We had a light supper and a glass of wine, and since it was getting rather late and I knew that there was a busy few days ahead of us, I went to bed feeling happy and content, leaving Paul and David to chat. Saturday 4th of June The day dawned. It was drizzling with rain, very chilly and windy. The outlook was not very encouraging for us. Leaving the cottage at 09.30 hours, we drove to Aramanche, where part of our 50th Division assault, codenamed Item, had taken place. We arrived at 12.15 hours and it was still drizzling with rain and windy, just as it was on D-Day. We parked the car on the hilltop overlooking the sea, and down below but to the left nestled the town of Aramanche. Despite the rather inclement weather, visibility was good enough for us to have a good view of the remains of the Mulberry Harbour. It's incredible that it had survived the buffeting of the sea for the past 50 years. It was dirty underfoot as we walked down the hill into the town, 
This was the beginning of a very emotional experience for me. Soldiers were on the beach rehearsing their programme for the day's events, pacing and turning, correcting. This had to be perfect. I stood looking for a little while, then we went into the museum. Although I'd visited the museum when I came to Normandy in 1984, I still found it fascinating and difficult to accept that I had been part of it all 50 years ago. We left our homage behind, and after about a mile, we arrived at a spot where our B Company had waded ashore through the surf onto the beach at 0725 hours on the 6th of June 1944. Gold Beach and it all came back to me so vividly. D Company on our right, and the spot where Stan Hollis won the only Victoria Cross to be won on D-Day. I saw that knocked-out tank on the beach, and all the dead and wounded lads lying around, and the shelling and the mortaring. I turned around, and I could see all those ships at sea. Listener, in more recent years I've made a short video tracing the path and actions off Gold Beach. You'll find a link to it in the show notes. It's on the website fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk. After taking photographs, we had to leave to travel to our hotel, St. Christophe, which was about 100 kilometres away. It was the nearest hotel we could get because all the hotels in Bayer had been fully booked for years. However, it was a cosy small hotel, only six ensuite bedrooms. It was a delightful place in only a small attractive village of the same name as the hotel. After our meal, I sat with the boys who'd paid for me to take this sentimental trip and were really looking after me. I was enjoying the comfort surrounding me, but by now I was feeling a little drowsy and decided I'd leave the boys to chat. We'd indulged in a good meal and wine and it was 22.25 with a busy day ahead, so I retired happy and very contented. Sunday 5th of June The sun blazing through my window woke me up at 06.30, and I hurried to dress so that I could go for a walk while the lad still slept. I went for a two-mile walk along a country lane up an incline. The cows were grazing and the corn was standing upright. It was a beautiful morning. After taking some photographs, I returned to the hotel to awaken Paul and David, since we had a full day ahead of us. We parked the car on the outskirts of the town and walked the short distance into Bayer and sat at a pavement cafe for coffee and more photographs. The atmosphere created by the commemoration was something to be proud of. The French were greeting us with genuine friendliness and there were posters everywhere saying, We welcome our liberators. Our first call was Bayer Museum, about which the boys showed great enthusiasm. Information about my 50th division was very comprehensive, since it was our division which had liberated the city on the 7th of June 1944. It was good to see all the memorabilia concerning the invasion, Walking back across the road, we entered the beautifully maintained military cemetery, up and down the rows of headstones looking for the green Howard motif. Although I was last here in 1984, I still had to search for the graves I wanted to visit. 
I stood at the foot of the graves of Captain Lynn and Captain Chambers, and said a little prayer, and repeated that at all the Green Howard graves I could find, thinking of the lads as I last saw them, alive and full of vitality, fighting for their country. I felt very sad because I knew that many folk back home did not appreciate the sacrifice these young soldiers had made. Walking back into town, we visited, as in 1984, the Leon Door Hotel, which had been a favourite haunt of senior German officers during the war, and where I'd stayed ten years ago. Where had these past years gone to? As one gets older, the swift passage of time is almost frightening. I then recalled the way to the plaque on the wall which had been put up by the city, telling the world that the 50th Division had liberated the city on the 7th of June, 1944. I felt very proud to have been part of it. Again, we took photographs. We stopped at a pavement cafe where I enjoyed a good helping of chips. The lads had something exotic, but I can't recall what it was. The sun up to now had shone beautifully, it made such a difference, the day was perfect, and the lads looked after me with the love which I know they have for me. It was time to get back to our hotel in time for dinner. It had been a great day, and I knew that I was lucky to be alive to experience it. Monday, 6th of June, 1944 it's been a memorable day, particularly for me, but for the boys too, who were taking part in a day of history, a day of sadness and pageantry the like of which will never be seen again. We'd left our hotel early in order to follow the itinerary which had been organised by the authorities. Arriving at the park and ride where buses were waiting, and young French soldiers and policemen, all showing the utmost courtesy towards us for the occasion. We had to walk about 400 yards to the graves and also to find a good vantage point on the route through the cemetery in order to see the Queen and ceremonial. There was much jockeying but we did manage a good position. During the next hour we saw the Queen and Prince Philip followed by Prime Minister John Major and his wife, Douglas Hurd and many other important people. Then the Queen and Philip came down the centre of the cemetery, passing in front of us, making their way to the main ceremony about 100 yards away. The proceedings were all relayed to us, and the atmosphere was heavy with emotion, which was to be expected. Right in front of us stood four French soldiers, and at the end of the ceremony they played the last post. It sounded magnificent. By now Paul had left David and I. He was on the hunt for good photographs and was very successful. The royals came walking back and mixed with the veterans. Several times I was so close I could have touched the Queen, but for her bodyguard. These proceedings took about two hours, after which we made our way back to the buses, passing the Duke of Kent and after a little delay were taken to Aramanche. Aramanche is only a small seaside town situated at the bottom of a hilly coastline. The beach is flat and ideal for the purpose for which it was used in 1944. The place was crowded with many thousands of veterans and the local folk. I found myself a place amongst a rather chaotic column of veterans and strangely enough noticed a chap with a green Howard badge and discovered that he'd been in the 7th Battalion. I was in the 6th. Over the years, he too had had similar experiences to me. 
The column moved very slowly down the slope to the beach, which was still very wet, the tide having not long gone back. The local folk had long ago claimed their own vantage points overlooking the beach. Also, there was a large stand overlooking the parade area. I believe it was mainly for the benefit of those rather too old to take part in the march past, and also for the invalids. They were all giving us a tremendous welcome, showing their gratitude for the liberation of fifty years ago, clapping and cheering continuously. Paul went off again to take some more photographs, while David, representing his dad who'd been in the RAF, and myself, remained in the column and made our way to an allotted place on the beach. We were walking in water, the beach being so flat. Seaward, the backdrop to the proceedings was the remains of the Mulberry Harbour, whilst in the shallows stood a large tank landing craft, bow doors open, just as it would have been all those years ago. Many other ships were out at sea. Facing back towards the town, I saw a solid sea of faces, everybody enjoying this day. The thousands of veterans formed up on the sides about eight deep, facing the dais in the centre. The band was playing. After about one hour, the Queen's Land Rover came down the ramp on the left, and the populace cheered mightily. The Queen and Prince Philip in one vehicle, and then Princess Margaret and Princess Anne inspected, well, not really inspected, but drove down the columns of veterans very slowly, stopping now and then. The Mayor of Aramanche gave an excellent speech, then the Queen gave a very emotional speech, during which she faltered at times, feeling emotional when she referred to the sacrifices made fifty years ago. The band struck up, playing some very emotional tunes for the ex-soldiers to join in, but I'm afraid my feelings gave way to the occasion, and I just thought my own thoughts of the 6th of June, 1944. The whole atmosphere was heavily charged. Now it was time for the march past the royals. The dais was an hour left, about fifteen yards away. Prince Philip was stood to attention and saluting us the whole time. We could not have received a more cordial and enthusiastic welcome from the people of Aramanche. They cheered and clapped without pause, showing their heartfelt thanks for what we'd done for them. After the march passed, Paul found us. He'd been in his element, finding a good vantage point, standing on a post, taking excellent photographs, and also taking photographs for people standing below him. As we started to leave the beach, walking through the crowds, a Lancaster and Spitfire with a hurricane flew over. It was a fantastic scene, and the cheering just went on and on. We then made our way to a large field, where we received tea or fruit juice and biscuits from the Salvation Army. It had been a most rewarding and never-to-be-forgotten day, a day when the thousands of ex-soldiers who were in the assault on D-Day would think of the comrades who gave their lives. After returning to Bayer, we left for the cottage, which was a two-and-a-half-hour journey. Thursday 7th of June. The morning was overcast but it was dry. I was out of bed at 0615 and got a good fire going for the lads. 
They said I had to waken them as 0900, by which time I had prepared breakfast. We were away without any waste of time because we had a full day ahead of us. First stop was a lovely small town by the name of Hesdin, pronounced Edin, where we had some delicious chips. Time seemed to be passing so quickly, so we lost no time travelling to Graveline, which is about ten miles north of Calais. I showed Paul where I was in 1940. The place had not changed in 54 years. I'd been billeted in Graveline for a short period, and we took a photograph of me standing in front of the building. We then motored to Bray Dune, where there was much to show Paul. David had seen it all in 1984, and since the car was laden with luggage, he stayed with it. Bray Dune had changed very little also, so it was very vivid in my memory. We walked onto the beach with all its memories for me, and there was so much that I wanted to show Paul. Retracing my steps of 54 years ago, we went into the same deep sand dunes amongst which I'd taken shelter when the Stukas came over dealing death and destruction with their dive-bombing and machine-gun strafing. We could see Dunkirk about five miles in the far distance along the beach where we saw the thick palls of black smoke rising from the oil tanks. As we walked along the beach, I showed Paul where we'd tried to get onto the small boats without success, before we eventually walked the distance in the deep sand to Dunkirk itself in order to board the Lady of Man on the Mole. Being able to actually show my son and talk about it is very different from reading the book, Many photos were taken. The only thing different to 1940 was the huge concrete gun emplacement, part of the Atlantic Wall. We walked slowly back to the car, looking out to sea. It had all gone too quickly for me. I wanted to linger and wonder at my experiences of those far-off days, because I will not be returning to Normandy except in thought. The holiday was perfect, something to dream about. Listener, I'd like to add a few of my own memories to Dad's, um, just miscellaneous things really. We visited the Leon d'Or, I think as Dad mentioned, for a coffee, and it uh, has a wonderful feel to it. And as Dad said, it was used by the German officers during the time they were occupying defeated France. And the hotel is steeped in the history of those events. I, they used to have photographs of those officers, uh, like Rommel, years ago, I'm sure. But nowadays they've been replaced by photographs of other famous dignitaries who've stayed there. So we've got photographs of Churchill, Eisenhower, John Wayne... Uh, and it's all very good, uh, and I'd certainly recommend the Leon Door as an option for somewhere to stay if you go to Bayer. Um, one of my own highlights of the stay was the ceremony in the morning, the memorial service at Bayer Cemetery. I can recall a hubbub be behind me from someone making their way through the crowd, and I turned round and suddenly found a grinning Prince Philip appearing right over my shoulder. I quickly pointed my camera at him and got a shot, but sadly it was a bit blurred. 
Only minutes later, I saw the Queen close up and she too was making her way through a crowd of people and I was about a yard away from her at one point. So I did get a picture of her. Um, I've put loads of photos of the day in the show notes, needless to say. But uh, I've never forgotten my close brush with royalty. The one thing that makes me a royalist is the freedom that the Queen's unfettered appearance represented to to me on that day. Um, It's part of what my dad fought for, the freedom to walk around people and country free from harm. I think that's what democracy is about. The whole visit was perfect for me. And... uh, as Dad said, something to, something to dream about. You know, one great thing about doing this show has been the intricate details I've been able to add to Dad's account of events, names, places, uh, events, and even photographs, and above all, these fantastic memoirs that we can all read and listen to, uh, which might never have seen the light of day if not for them, if not for the chain of events that Dad set in motion when he first put pen to paper to write his memoirs. And for that, Dad, I thank you so much, old chum. I love you forever. Next episode. I'm sorry to say it's going to be a short one next time. Well, I always say that, but anyway, uh, call it a pod snack rather than a podcast. I've got one or two short stories to share with you, several really, um, basically because I'm going to be working hard on 98-year-old Wilf Shaw's full memoirs, Bright Burns the Memory, top priority for the next several weeks. So I hope you understand. It's going to be an audio book. So uh, Abby, if you're still listening, you were the one that was chasing audio books. I know you're after my dad's and hopefully that will come. But uh, anyway, I'm very excited by Will's memoir. Uh, There's still quite a bit of work to do on it, but more details to follow. It will include a lot of material you've never heard before. And Wilf had a knack of expressing things on paper, which somehow finessed whatever he talked about. And And he was funny when he spoke. So if I can keep a straight face, I hope to get his very precious works out in the foreseeable future. Uh, now, just by admitting it in public, I now know I'm going to have to deliver. In the meantime, keep a lookout for my pod snacks. You've been listening to the Fighting Through Podcast, Episode 27, Veterans Bennett and Shield, Remember D-Day. Please do hear me next time. Here's the PS. This is coming from Mike Moss, who just wrote to me uh, with some fascinating news on his own research. Stuff to do with retreading his father, uh, Sergeant Brian Moss's escapades in the 233 Field Company, the Royal Engineers. Uh, They were working very close to Dad's Green Howards and particularly the 5th East Yorks. If you've not heard the episodes depicting Brian's memoirs on the London Blitz, North Africa and D-Day, then you are missing a treat. So if you're enjoying the show, I do commend you to catch up on those episodes. It doesn't get much better than that. I'll put some links in the show notes. And uh, this is what Mike, who's Brian's son, is now living in Canada. This is what he said. Dad had a phenomenal memory. 
And while much of his diary was written from memory in the mid-80s, he also made dozens of sketches at that time to illustrate various scenarios. Two decades later, after his death, I used many of those sketches like treasure maps as I went on several quests to follow his footsteps. First to sites in London where he'd started with the Royal Engineers in an unexploded bomb disposal company. Familiar sites, but by then I'd already been living in Canada for 25 years. In later trips I travelled through Sicily and on another I went from Gold Beach in Normandy through Belgium and into Holland, following their route in Operation Market Garden as far as Nijmegen, where a butterfly bomb finally took Dad out of the war in September 44. Some of the sketches were in rather poor condition so I digitised them and I've been restoring them, replacing text and adding colour. I intend to use these to illustrate a book based on his diary. It's been a very long project, interrupted by several other writing projects. During my travels I visited Commonwealth War Grave sites where Dad's former comrades were buried and photographed their headstones. Incredibly, along the way, I found two men still living who remembered Dad, one in Sicily, in a village where Dad had taken their surrender in a sort of comic opera after the horrors of Primasoli Bridge. The second was on the Dutch border where Dad's platoon had stopped overnight in a hamlet. The homeowner remembered how he'd given Dad some eggs in exchange for cigarettes. He took me in and showed me where Dad had slept that night the only night in the war where he had accepted such an offer of a real bed from a civilian. Fifteen years ago or thereabouts I traced Spencer Crookenden, who was then still alive. I spoke to him on the phone. He denied having been known as Kicking Straps, but I'm convinced the nickname was correct. It certainly sounds right. I managed to find the precise location where Dad and his men sought and destroyed three Sturmgeschütz tanks, Stugs, parked line astern on a track near a railway line. Before even going to Sicily, I'd studied the area on Google Earth and identified the likely spot. Sure enough, it was just as he'd described. Sixty-plus years later, a signal box still lay in ruins from the exploding Stugs. A lava rock wall at the side of the track is blown away in three places, consistent with where each of the Stugs was parked. After my return from Sicily, I actually managed to trace one of the tank commanders, still alive in Bonn, and I came to understand how these assault guns had been abandoned. The only chapters of the diary I've not pursued in these quests is North Africa, I was warned that some of the areas I might want to visit were still mined. This was in the days before Libya and its neighbours became a newly dangerous place again, so I doubt I will ever make those trips now. I have photocopies of the 233 war diary, and I can tell you that other than describing where they were on a particular day, and what significant actions had been joined, I was a bit disappointed by the lack of detail. NCOs are not usually named, even when they were killed. The butterfly bomb event that seriously wounded Dad only named him as an NCO, and his colleague who was killed was referred to as one other rank killed. 
only the officer, a Lieutenant St. John, was named. For all those subsequent decades, Dad thought the officer had been killed, but the war diary states he was wounded, and I could find no record of him as being listed as a fatality either in Holland or the UK. After being taken to a casualty clearing station, Dad was airlifted days later to a hospital in Wiltshire. By happenstance, a nearby village would become home to our family, 15 years later. My biggest regret is that I didn't start the trips until after Dad's passing. Somehow, visiting those once dangerous places helped me understand what had shaped him to become the man I knew and loved. Well, listener, I've been privileged to read Brian Moss's diary, and it is terrific. I still I still listen to the shows I did in his memoirs, and I never tire of listening to them, even the drone of my own voice. So uh, I do hope one day Mike's ambition to get it published will be realised. If it is, you'll certainly be hearing about it on the show. And Abby, if it makes audio book, I'll write to you personally. For now... I'm Paul Cheel saying bye-bye now.